Donald Trump looks set to become the first president in US history to be impeached twice as members of the House of Representatives debate his role in inciting the rioters that stormed the US Capitol building a week ago today. We'll assess the potency of the magazine cover as debate continues around Kamala Harris's cover shoot for Vogue. And we'll hear from our Balkans correspondent on a diplomatic gift to Russia that has stirred old tensions in the Balkans. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. I'm Thomas Lewis and joining us today to cast their expert eyes across some of the day's notable news stories from around the world are Monocle's culture editor Chiara Romella and our news editor Chris Chermak. Chris, Chiara, this is the first time I've spoken to you since the, the dawning of the new year. Very happy new year to you both. How is the new year treating you both so far in these early days? Chiara, let's start with you. So I'm I'm happy, but it is a very busy time at the moment because I'm really putting the finishing touches on the Monocle Book of Italy, which has been, I guess, the greatest project I've been able to work on over my career here. It's an you know a homage to my home country. It's been bloody hard work, so I'm kind of happy to see it on its merry way soon, and hopefully it will satisfy the hankerings of our readers soon. A labour of love by the sounds of it, Kiara. And Chris, how about you? How are these early days of 2021 treating you so far? Oh, Thomas, happy New Year to you. It's been a crazy start uh, as somebody in a news editor role, uh, or for somebody in a news editor role, I should say, hasn't it? Not only, of course, the pandemic, but then just watching as we will be talking about everything that's been happening out of the United States um, you know, you can't help but feel, as I'm also American, having a personal stake in this somewhat being quite impacted last week by by the pictures. So it's just, yeah, what can you what can you say? We thought 2020 was was a rough year, and then to have this kind of news story start start us off. I mean, uh, where is this year going to go, Thomas? Where? It would take a wiser man than me, Chris, to answer that question. But Chris Chermak and Chiara Romella, thank you both very much for being with us on the programme today. Well, let's begin in the United States, where the House of Representatives will vote today on whether to impeach President Trump for a second time for his role, as Chris alluded to there, in inciting the mob that invaded the US Capitol building a week ago today. Chris, we are going to hear from Washington, D.C. in a moment. Uh, But if you could begin for us on the latest manoeuvres leading up to today's vote, particularly on the Republican side of the proceedings that are underway and also kind of what the latest is from Capitol Hill as you're reporting on it from London. Sure, Thomas. Well, all of this has really come together in uh, record time for such an extraordinary move. It looks like, you know, just one week after the attack on the U.S. Capitol, The House is set to vote today on whether to impeach Donald Trump for the second time. Of course, he'd be the only president ever to be impeached twice if that happens. The charge this time around is very simple. There's just one article of impeachment, as it's called, basically inciting an insurrection. And Democrats, at least, or supporters of impeachment, have argued that one of the reasons to move so quickly is that the evidence in this case is plain for all to see because we were all watching this unfold in full public view last Wednesday. Donald Trump encouraged a protest on that day, the day that Congress was certifying November's presidential election results, and then told the crowd assembled 
to go to the capital and fight or risk losing their country. So what you're seeing this evening is the House debate the merits of this article of impeachment. Members of both parties have been giving speeches for and against before taking a vote. It's fair to say that even those refusing to back impeachment aren't issuing really full-throated defenses of Trump at this point, but rather calling for unity and for people to move on, essentially. At least half a dozen uh, Republican House members have openly broken ranks, though, with the party at this point and said they are voting to impeach. And sources are there will be more defections on the way, anywhere from 10 to 20, potentially. That's not a huge number, but still significant given the cohesion within the Republican Party up until this point. Donald Trump, final thing to say for an update for his part tonight, as the debate was going on, issued a statement urging any uh, additional demonstrations by his supporters planned in the coming days to be peaceful. He said, and I quote, there must be no violence, no law-breaking, and no vandalism of any kind. That's not what I stand for, and it is not what America stands for. But, you know, when you listen to the debate on the House floor this evening, you have to say that at least when it comes to impeachment, such a statement from Trump is really too little too late. Well, a little earlier today, we spoke to Geoffrey Howard of University College London, and he had this assessment for us on what some of the motives within the Republican flank might be at this stage of the process. Well, it looks like there are already many Republicans in the House of Representatives who are willing to vote with the Democrats to impeach the president this week. Perhaps most striking is the number three House Republican, Liz Cheney, who's a congresswoman from Wyoming, the daughter of the former vice president, Dick Cheney, under George W. Bush, who issued really an excoriating attack on the president, arguing that he's engaged in a greater betrayal of his office than any other president in American history. Now, those are really striking words from someone who up until recently was a pretty staunch Trump supporter. Mitch McConnell, who is currently the Senate majority leader and will soon be the Senate minority leader, is also indicating privately that he's fed up with the president and that he thinks that the president has committed impeachable crimes. Now, Will the Senate convict after the House impeaches? I find that pretty unlikely that you're going to be able to find 17 Republicans in the Senate to turn on Trump. But you never know. The situation's moving really, really quickly. Jeffrey Howard there speaking to us on the briefing today. Uh, Chris, to pick up on some of the things that Jeffrey mentioned there, he says that it's pretty unlikely that 17 Republicans in the Senate will ultimately, eventually, when the time comes, vote to convict the president. What's your feeling on that? Do you think that the support will remain steadfast or given the time that's likely to run now between any potential conviction, I should say, uh, whether minds can be changed? Well, Thomas, as Jeffrey said there, uh, I think the best way perhaps to sum it up is unlikely, but not out of the realm of possibility uh, at this point. It is a fast sort of moving story. I feel like this kind of uh, thing is changing, you know, every every day, frankly, at this point. And, you know, the reason that there might be a chance that, that Republicans would turn is not just because this is, you know, an important signal to uphold democracy in the United States. Uh, also, the fact that, you know, the U.S. Capitol where they were sitting was was uh, attacked uh, last week. So that, that sort of personal impact, I think, has affected Republicans and Democrats alike. But then also, you know, to put it just in political terms, that it might actually make political sense. Um, and that's because... 
uh, even though uh, Donald Trump obviously doesn't have much longer in office, impeaching him can also lead to a vote according to the Constitution that would bar that person from then running again. Uh, and as we, uh, as many people will know, Donald Trump has been quite open about the idea of running again in 2024. Um, and so, you know, some of the, the political calculation here goes that even, you know, within the Republicans, a vote for impeachment would allow the Republican Party to sort of move on from Donald Trump to try to try and put water under that bridge. And that is part of, as Jeffrey alluded to there, you could argue perhaps part of uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader uh, now uh, or soon to be minority leader of the Senate. That would be perhaps part of his calculation that he's sick of Donald Trump, but he also, you know, wants to just wants to move on and not have Donald Trump hanging over the Senate and the Republicans in the background. So it's clear that you could well see more Republicans voting to convict uh, Donald Trump than last time at the very least when it was just Mitt Romney, the former uh, presidential candidate who voted in favor. Um, Another way to look at it is most senators certified Joe Biden's results, so many Republicans are fuming over that aspect of what happened as well. And you have had senators, Lisa Murkowski being some of them, Suzanne Collins is a question mark, um, who, you know, have also said that they are fed up. Uh, I will say, having said that, that yes, most are still signaling that they kind of just want to move on. At this point, it is a very different tone from the last impeachment there, too. Even those who would uh, not vote necessarily to convict Donald Trump have really just tried to make the argument not that what he did was uh, justifiable, but that now is the time to unite. It's not the time to distract, as it were, and to, to go on another effort uh, to, to impeach the, the president at this point. We should be focusing on the coming year. I think, final point, it will be fascinating to see what Mitch McConnell actually does. I think that's going to be key if he comes out a bit more publicly. It's interesting to have had these, you know, private sources suggesting that he believes Trump has committed impeachable offenses. If he comes out and says that publicly, if he himself says he will vote for impeachment, what kind of signal would that be? How many other Republicans might follow him along that line? Um, that would be quite an extraordinary thing. And Kiara, the idea of Donald Trump's shadow looming over America's political life, as Chris alluded to there, it isn't only America's political life that that, that shadow looms. It's over business and other parts too. And we heard a little earlier today that the city of New York is ending all of its business contracts with the Trump organisation. Uh, how potent do you think it's been, away from the politics of this for a moment, that given that Trump was a president from outside the political sphere and very much from within the sphere of business and of money and of profits. Is there something to be said that, you know, this abandonment now by private bodies, business entities, city entities, that those things might be the most stinging element of all this to Trump in terms of the fallout of what took place a week ago? Well, I don't know if I would say that it would be the most stinging aspect. Um, there have been plenty of reports over the course of the last few years, um, you know, saying that Donald Trump has used office in order to pursue some private business interests, particularly when he was inviting hosting meetings or inviting um, representatives at his resorts, but also 
using his channels to you know promote his properties and and also just the mere fact that so many Republicans ended up staying at Trump properties pretty much wherever they went and that also kind of fueled into uh, his private interests but uh, not to play into a bit of a running joke here at Monocle where I always draw comparisons with the Italian context but I think as someone who grew up in Italy's you know in Berlusconi's Italy I can see some parallels there that are relevant. Whilst Berlusconi was considered, you know, the entrepreneurial uh, prime minister who came into power and for many people quite blatantly pursued his own business interests all the way through, you know, his his tenure – you know, Trump comes from this huge business background, but at the moment I think what strikes me the most in his, I guess – you know, hurt uh, ego is this aspect of his megalomania almost where it's more the reputational damage than the straight business damage. In that, I think the business damage is also a reputational damage because when you think about it, when he was running and during the campaign, he, the first one also, um, he constantly referred to how great a businessman he was and that kind of gave fuel to his fire if his businesses become not so profitable, and I mean, it's it's debatable whether they were that profitable even back when he was saying there were, but I feel like that feels more of a reputational hazard um, than necessarily a money one, though I'm sure there are some economical concerns as well. Um, With Berlusconi, uh, there was so much more a sense of his, you know, business empire at play all the time. Um, so it's interesting to say to see, you know, Berlusconi's empire eventually has endured, even though he's out of uh, he's out of office now. Obviously, he still has plenty of kind of media companies uh, to his name, and and so you know, in some way, business can continue despite everything. Well, let's stay in the US next year on the late edition, because in precisely one week's time, Kamala Harris will make history in the United States when she becomes the first woman and the first person of colour to be sworn in as vice president. In anticipation of that history-making moment, Vogue magazine's US edition landed an interview with the vice president-elect, and the cover photograph Vogue chose has become the source of quite robust debate, to put it lightly. Uh, Kiara, this story has been circulating for a few days by this stage but could you just round up for us what particularly about this cover photograph in the print edition has irked critics of it so much in its depiction of Kamala Harris? The main criticism that has been moved towards this image is that it's whitewashing and that it's disrespectful towards uh, the VP elect. And I think there are a lot of things to unpack there because it plays on the way that we read images. It also plays on our understanding of media and what it's and what it does and what it's meant to be doing. So a photo shoot was carried out of of the VP elect and um, she and her team chose certain outfits that she would be wearing during this photo shoot. Certain images were taken. And two options are the ones that have kind of come to the public's eye. And the one that Vogue magazine decided to go for, for the um, for the cover of its print edition, is the one that represents her in a more informal attire. She's wearing jeans and she's wearing a pair of Converse. Now, the much of the criticism around the fact that it's disrespectful is because the, the picture that has been chosen is shows her in this more informal attire and her 
expression, her pose is not quite as presidential as the other option would have been, but instead it's a little bit more awkward. It's, it's kind of a little bit cuter in a way rather than kind of, you know, very grandstanding and presidential. Um, and then on the other side, you've also got the issue of whitewashing. And that's got to do a lot with, I guess, Vogue's track record and the criticism that has been moved towards Vogue in the past of, you know, not representing both successful black people on the cover or supporting black um, photographers or artists on its pages. That's a, a you know, a prehistory that weighs a lot on, on this current situation. Um, though it has to be said that the portrait was taken by Tyler Mitchell, who is a black photographer himself. Um, and Vogue has denied the accusations of having lightened their skin colour uh, in the image. So there are lots of different threads that we can pull at in kind of deconstructing this image. And broadly speaking, Kiara, what's your response to it all? Kamala Harris's team has expressed disappointment with the image on the printed edition in question. But this is an editorial image, after all, a piece of, a piece of journalism. So it would have been pretty strange if Vogue had given Harris and her team the final say on which image they were going to use on the cover, wouldn't it? Yes, this is the side of the whole issue where I do agree with Vogue in that uh, we also as a magazine would not be giving approval to the subjects of our photographs for the images that we publish because the whole point is that it's the magazine's view of these things. And I would say that, and, and Anna Winter has made this point herself, that she she and the team chose this image because they, they specifically wanted to portray her in a more informal, accessible way. The title of, you know, the cover line is Madam Vice President and the New America and, you know, implicitly signalling at this thing that there is a change in the way that, you know, perhaps the country portrays itself and, and pictures itself. Um, I would say, though, that on the other side of this, uh, you've got important fashion critics like Robin Givan, um, who's a very respected voice and a black woman herself, who has said they've overstepped and they got too chummy too fast. And I can see what she means there because she says, as a black woman, I'm waiting for that moment of being able to have kind of a celebratory wow at looking at an image. And what this image does is it, it's very accessible and it, as I said, is chummier, it's cuter. It has a different effect and that's a deliberate editorial choice and we can debate whether this was the moment in which you have to bring people in with accessibility and kind of showing this friendlier face of politics or whether it was just a time to, I guess, celebrate an accomplishment in a more reverential tone. This is a, you know, a very tricky question. I have to say... Personally, though, I, I also couldn't help but feeling that given the significance of this moment, also this being, you know, a first woman vice president in U.S. history, having this more casual choice at this moment was maybe not the way to go, especially just ahead of the inauguration um, of the president and vice president-elect. It is true, having said that, also that Joe Biden and, uh, you know, his team, including Kamala Harris, presented themselves as accessible, uh, as, as Kiara talked about as well. But there, too, I would just say, you know, there's a time, in, in my mind at least, uh, one argument here is there is a time to be accessible and a time to be serious. And again, as we've talked about already on this show, 
in such a serious moment for U.S. politics, um, you know, b- between the pandemic but also the threat uh, to its democracy that we're facing, it just it felt a little bit out of step for me with, with that kind of moment as well. Well, finally, here on the late edition, let's turn our attentions away from the United States and to Bosnia, where a visit by Russia's foreign minister at the end of last year sparked a diplomatic dispute that is ongoing and that has highlighted the deep precariousness of something that should seem rather simple, the act of diplomatic gift-giving. Guy Delaunay is Monocle's correspondent in the Balkans and he explained the story for us on the briefing today. What exactly has happened here is that in December, Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, was visiting Bosnia and he was meant to meet all the members of the presidency. But two out of the three members of the presidency, the ethnic Croat member and the Bosniak Muslim member, refused to meet him because they said he'd already been to the ethnic Serb part of the country, Republika Srpska, and taken part in a ceremony where the Bosnian flag wasn't on display. So that was a diplomatic horror show in itself. It was then followed up by the remaining member of the presidency, the ethnic Serb, Milorad Dodik, presenting, you know, very proudly, this uh, gilded icon, quite a small artefact, really, not much bigger than an A4 folder, I don't think, to Sergei Lavrov, and that should have been that. What a gift from one Orthodox Christian leader to another. But no, on the photographs of the occasion, you could see on the rear of it, there was a stamp which said Ukrainian protected heritage, and that was when it all kicked off. Monocle's Balkans correspondent Guy Delaunay speaking to the briefing a little earlier today. Chris, it's a bit of a bewildering story and one that has so many threads woven through it. What struck you most about the the kind of precariousness of the scenario that's unfolded following this visit in in December to, to Bosnia by Russia's foreign minister? What a bewildering story this is, Thomas. Um, but I think it is an interesting one to highlight Um You know, I think symbolism is so important in diplomacy, but particularly in this part of the world, you know, a legacy, of course, of the civil war of Yugoslavia and also the sort of shared and disputed history and historical claims um, that that you see within this region, within the Balkans. What struck me, though, also about this story was really how it had these kind of quite real implications. You know, the, the question, uh, as, as Guy alluded to there, was, was kind of how did, the, how did the ethnic Serbs in Bosnia get their hands on this artifact from eastern Ukraine? There's, there's this obviously ongoing resistance there backed by some uh, Russian forces, but also including fighting by some Serbs in eastern Ukraine as well, since the Serbia is allied with Russia. So there was this whole question that the Ukraine rightfully sort of the, the embassy, the Ukrainian embassy brought up, which was, how, how did you get this artifact in the first place? So, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of symbolism, but it, but it also shows, you know, some of the connections and, and dangerous connections and alliances in this, in this part of the world. Uh, finally, I just say it's, uh, you know, I just think it's been an interesting week for diplomatic symbolism. The other story that I've been following quite a bit was Taiwan and the U.S. and China, where, you know, the U.S.'s ambassador to the U.N. was due to travel to Taiwan, would have been uh, one of the most significant visits by uh, an American official in in a long time, um, and also came after Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, 
basically uh, uh, said that there would be, he sort of lifted a limit on visits by U.S. officials to Taiwan. Some important symbolism there too, even though the visit was eventually cancelled because the State Department basically said, well, it's too close to the inauguration and we're cancelling um, all visits of this administration. But, you know, these these shows of support or non-support do matter. I think they're subtle ways often for countries to to signal alliances um, and and also non-alliances, you know, where, where they stand. And that's that can be quite important. Well, I think that more broadly speaking, um, the issue of provenance at the moment is huge in, you know, the art world and conversations around that. And I think for many, many decades, we have been used to, you know, items of dubious or of outright condemnable provenance being displayed unproblematically in many very different settings. And so I think on a wider level, a lot of different, uh, you know, museums around the world are coming to reckon with the fact that having something, having inherited something from a collection doesn't necessarily mean that it's completely unproblematic to show. Um, So in that respect, I think, you know, it's very hard because it goes to the heart of what we think an artefact and an and a piece of art is. Is a piece of art just a, a reflection of history, a kind of a memento of the past, um, a, a witness to what's happened? Or is it intrinsically something of a celebration? Is displaying something intrinsically something of a celebration? You know, we've had so many conversations about this this year around the idea of statues and what they mean. You know, are they, a, 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 you know, a a thing of the past, a, a memory of the past, or are they a celebration of the past? And, and that goes into each and every one of these conversations all the way down to the icon, you know, is the fact that it comes from a specific place. Does it detract from the value of the work itself? Is it part of the story of the artwork? Does it mean that it is, you know, its defining feature? Um, it's difficult and it goes to the heart of what we actually think art is and art does. Well, Chiara Romella and Chris Chermak, our very own iconic duo, if you'll see what I did there, here on the late edition. That's all we have time for for today's programme. Thank you very much, as always, for being with us on the programme today. A big thanks, too, to Sam Impey in London, who edited today's programme. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow, but do be sure to join the Globalist team tomorrow here at Monocle 24 from 7am London time. They'll be bringing us full reaction to events at the US House of Representatives today. I'm Thomas Lewis. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye for now.